All right. Um, we've got about 40 minutes to rightly go through the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and so <clears throat> it's not an easy task, but I think that if we can focus, we can fully comprehend uh, the magnitude of the Trinity in these next four. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, we're going to be scraping the surface here, but we got a lot of work to do and a little bit of time to do it in. So go, go ahead and just turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to pray. We're going to talk about the Trinity, and uh, hopefully our minds will be adequately blown, but still there will be enough of them left that we can uh, respond rightly uh, to what we've heard. Uh, pray with me. God, you are good. You are true. You are peace and hope and love and all these things that we sang. Uh, we believe it, but you are, you are more, as the song said, you are more than our words could ever say. And, and in no doctrine, perhaps, in, in no facet of our faith is that more true than in the Trinity. And so I pray that even through this difficult discussion, even through, uh, through all of this, God, that you would be exalted in our hearts, that we would truly sing no other name except for that of the risen King Jesus, that our lives would be transformed, that our minds would be engaged and fully given over to you, and that our affections would just, God, they would be for you. We're good. We love you. Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in Colossians 2, and we're going to be reading verses 6 through 15. Uh, we're we're going to spend probably 40% of the time there, maybe 45. Uh, but w- I want to read it first so that our minds begin to think about uh, what's going on here. And so if you would, please stand with me. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, um, and that's on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, turn to it. It's good to kind of get that feel for where things are in your Bibles. Um, So, uh, Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. God, there's a lot in here. 
And I just pray that your spirit right now would come down in a special way on all of us, God, illuminating our hearts, opening our ears uh, so that we might receive your revelation uh, through your servant Paul. Uh, and, and God, that you would uh, make me small so that you might be big, that you might be glorified and exalted here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. We are talking about the Trinity, and so before we get into that, uh, we, we ought to define exactly what we mean by the Trinity. Uh, there, there are a lot of different understandings of the Trinity. I, I had originally thought to ask you what your different understandings of the Trinity might have been, but just for the sake of time, just keep those in your head, because I know some of you may have heard of uh, the, the pretzel. When you think of Trinity, you may think of a pretzel. Uh, if you don't think of that, you're like, why are they thinking about pretzels? Uh, it doesn't really matter. If, if some of you may think about like the different stages of water, you know, ice, water, steam. Uh, some of you may be thinking about Celtic knots. Uh, some of you, different things may, uh, as uh, as a child, I was not very spiritual. I was more football-minded, and I was a cowboy f- Cowboys fan during the glory days. And so it was, it was Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, and Michael Irvin. Um, and that is way off, way, way false. Um, and I, I don't endorse that. But, but we all have a lot of different understandings of the Trinity. Uh, we're going to define the Christian Orthodox understanding of the Trinity. How do you define the doctrine of the Trinity? We're going to use seven statements to do it. Uh, you can write this down if you want. I, I'd, I'd suggest memorizing and, and knowing these seven statements. The first statement is this. There is one God. You might say there is only one God. This is also true. But there is one God. Statement number two, the Father is God. Number three, the Son is God. Number four, the Holy Spirit is God. Number five, the Father is not the Son. Number six, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Finally, number seven, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Now, I could have added a number eight, and that would have been this. All of these things have always been true. But that is, in a nutshell, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, and some of you may know this already. Some of you may have heard this. For others of you, this is completely new, and that, that's fine. Uh, seven statements. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And if you do all the math and the workings of possible combinations, uh, they've all been handled. Just, just kind of trust me on that. Uh, and these have always been true. Each statement is completely true without in any way compromising any of the other statements. That's a lot. That, that, that's big to comprehend. That, that, if you really think about those seven statements... Uh, and that they are all equally true and simultaneously true and have eternally been true, uh, 
your, your heart, your mind, they ought to be racing. Uh, some of you, it may lead to skepticism. Uh, we'll address that a little bit later. Some of you, and hopefully most of you as believers, it ought to lead you to, to immense worship of this complex God. But this is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we will state it in other ways, uh, that, that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's saying the same thing. I just think that there's a lot more to unpack in that little statement than in those seven sentences. Um, the reality is that the Trinity is central to our faith as Christians. Uh, there's actually an article on the Gospel Coalition website by a guy named Kevin DeYoung, and the title is The Trinity. There's no Christianity without it. That's, that's, that's the truth. There is no Christianity without the Trinity. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at these verses that we just read, and we're going to see why. And so let, let's go quickly to Colossians. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 2, and let's look at what, what Paul has said. And, and I want to give you some of the context. Uh, Paul, uh, just earlier, has told the church in Colossae that he has been suffering uh, for them on their behalf. He's been happy to suffer on their behalf for the sake of, of, of Christ, because Christ alone is supreme. Christ alone is worthy of our praise, of our, of our lives, of our glory, and of our our suffering, but he is supremely worthy of our suffering. Uh, he talks about the preeminence of Christ in all things. And then he goes on to say that he suffered for the, the, the church in Colossae, for the Colossians uh, for on their behalf. And then he comes here and he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's transitioning in the book now to tell us how to walk in Christ. What it means to walk in Christ. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That's how you walk. As you walk, you are rooted in Christ. You are built up in Christ and you are established in the faith just as you were taught in thanksgiving. And so now he comes to defining that faith. And he says, when you believe the faith, certain things are going to happen. And here's the first thing. It says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We are called to reject, to reject false philosophies and false theologies. And in order to do that, we have to understand what the, the truth is. We have to understand the true teaching that, that we were, were taught and built up, which is in Christ Jesus. And, and what he goes on to explain is the Trinity. And so what I want to do for a second uh, is to take time to explain why Christianity cannot exist apart from the Trinity and why the Trinity specifically distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. And the way I'm going to do that is by talking about what, what the Trinity is not. A lot of times, as Brad said last week, uh, Christian doctrine, uh, the things that we believe are, uh, are formulated by confronting false teaching. And there has been a lot of false teaching on the Trinity. And when you, when you uh, espouse these beliefs and when you 
believe these things, uh, you, you fail to believe the God of the Bible, and thus you, you fail to believe true Christian teaching. And so the first thing we're going to say is what the Trinity is not. The Trinity is not a hierarchy of gods. And so what I mean by that is this, the, that God the Father is not God Most High, and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are, are lesser gods, or God-like. If you believe that that God the Father is the only true God, and that Jesus Christ is like a God, God-like, um, godly, uh, then, then you're, you're Jehovah's Witness. This is what they believe. Uh, they look at, at passages like John 1, and I won't go too much into this, but it says, in the beginning was the Word, which we know is talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what they say is that in the Greek, the word for God doesn't have a definite article. It's not, there's not a the in front of it. The word was the God. And so what they say is that that must mean then that the word was a God or God-like, godly. And so they say Jesus wasn't God and you're an idolater for worshiping Jesus as God. He was just godly. Of course, we know that they're wrong. We'll talk about why they're wrong in a little bit. Um, but, but we don't believe that. We also do not affirm uh, the idea that uh, God is eternally existent as Father, Son, and Spirit, but not at the same time. In other words, sometimes God acts as Father and not Spirit and Son, and sometimes as Son, not Father and Spirit, and sometimes a Spirit, not Father and Son. Uh, this is the danger in the uh, ice water uh, vapor analogy. Uh, the reality is that what we believe is that God exists as ice, water, and vapor at the very same time. There's no thing, no rise or lowering of temperature that changes the essence of God. God is who he is at all times. Uh, this is called modalism. Uh, and, and let me explain to you for just one second why this is a problem. Uh, and we actually see it in Colossians chapter 2. What we find out uh, is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that is God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And that means... That at that very moment, both persons of the Trinity, two out of three, and really we can talk about the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in that, but they are active in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. If God was just fully Christ in that moment, when Christ died for us, there would be no resurrection. And as Paul says in Corinthians, we would still be in our sin. And... If Jesus on the cross was not fully God, but in that moment, God was the Father. And, and I know this is a lot. Stay with it. Trust me. Trust me. If God was only the Father, then, then the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross would not be sufficient. And either way, we have no Christianity. This is modalism. And this is one of the reasons why, uh, I don't even know how long it's been now, why, some time ago, we spent so much time talking about the shack. 
There are a lot of problems with the shack. One of them is writing, in my opinion. But <laughs> if you like the shack, I'm sorry that was underhanded. I should not have said that. Uh, but the other, uh, the, the major problem is that there's a scene where the main character sees, is, is, is hanging out in this shack with God, a big black woman, Jesus, a Middle Eastern man, and then the Holy Spirit, who's a, an Asian woman who kind of comes in and out of focus. Um, and and he, he's talking to Jesus about how painful it must have been for Jesus to be on the cross and have the Father turn his back on Jesus, um, which is a necessary doctrine for our salvation. Uh, and God the Father, Mother, says... No, that's not true. And holds out her hands, and there are holes in her hands. All right? So what she's saying is, is at that point, we were just one. We were completely one. God the Father, God the Son, were on the cross together, being nailed to the cross. This is modalism. It, it's not the Christian faith. And it's comforting, I get that, but it's false comfort. The comfort is, is not in the fact that God died on the cross with Jesus. It's in the fact that the Father was then powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. That's it. And what I'm saying is the, these, these, mis, uh, these misconceptions about the Trinity, it's not just thousands of years ago and they were hammered out and people were burned at the stake to get this thing right. It's right here and right now. If you believe that uh, God, uh, the Father, uh, the Son, and the Spirit are three gods, uh, but they are not the same God, but they are equal in their godness, and that at some point God the Father bore Jesus, the Son, you're a Mormon. I don't even need to begin to start on that. But here's the reality is that Scripture tells us that Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father. Remember, uh, I said that eighth statement could have been, these things have always been. These statements have always been true. Christianity also is different from Eastern religions. And the Trinity shows that. Because in the Trinity, we say we have one God and three persons. And Hindus and, and Buddhists say, why so few gods? And Muslims and the Jewish faith says, why so many? And some of you are sitting in here and you're saying, Let's be honest. You Christians, you worship the same God as, as the Muslims do, right? I mean, it's the same God. It, maybe it's just about what Jesus did that makes you different. Uh, and that's a common belief. It's popular. Um, even one of the theologians who was formerly on my uh, top list, uh, Miroslav Volf, he's a guy out of Yale. He just wrote a book. Um, 
essentially saying that God of, of the Christian faith and Allah of the Islamic faith are the same God. And that there is much ground for relationship between Muslims and Christians because of that. And then what, where the difference happens is, you know, right around Abraham. Now, I'm not, I'm not poking fun at the guy. He is smarter than I ever want to be. I'm, I'm serious. And he's, he's a, I, I, I really did love this guy. He's got work on the Trinity, which is why I'm so confused with everything that he's saying. That's really good. He's got work on peace and, and, and uh, forgiveness that's amazing. And yet here he is saying that we worship the same God as the Muslims. And here's the thing is a Muslim won't say that. They wouldn't. They would say we're pagan idolaters because we worship three gods. And we say they're pagan idolaters because they worship the false god. Our God is not separate, three separate gods. Our God is one. And the Trinity distinguishes us from every other religion. It really does. And so, beyond just seeing how it makes us different, let's spend just a little bit of time talking about why the Trinity matters to us now. Because it matters. Uh, If you are not a part of a home group, I'm going to stop right now. Take a little break from the sermon. I'm going to tell you that you need to be in a home group. Because we're going to talk about why the Trinity matters in a home group more. And more deeply. We're going to look at creation why the Trinity is important in creation. Uh, We're going to look at uh, salvation and the Christian life. All in home groups. I don't have time to do all that. Um, If you're not in a home group, you need to be in one. They are so important. And I know, if I sound like a broken record, praise God. (laughs) You need to be in a home group. And anyone who's in a home group will tell you how great it is, for the most part, I imagine. Um, Can't speak for everyone, I guess. Um, But let's get back. What we're going to talk about this morning, continue talking about, is why the Trinity matters for you as a Christian right now. And and this is an odd passage to choose. I I recognize that. But we're going to walk through now. If you have your Bibles, open it to Colossians 2. If not, just, just hear... Hear what Paul is saying, because we're going to take the the last little bit of time that we have. We're going to walk through Colossians 2 and see the importance of the Trinity in your life as a believer. And if you are not a believer, I want you to listen to this. And I want you to hear and see that the God that we worship as Christians is more complex and more beautiful, and more worthy of our worship, and more able to comfort us in time of need, and more able to right the wrongs of the world than any other God. It is reasonable and right to believe so. So let's do it. We're going to start 
in verse 9. And remember, we're not to be held captive by any false philosophies. The, the, the Greek word there in verse 8 for philosophy actually does have a definite article. Uh, and it's the philosophy, which is the philosophy of the day. Uh, we've seen the philosophy of the day, and it's poison. And here's the reality is it's always been poison. Um, but we're called not to take that pill. We're not called to follow empty deceit according to human tradition, but rather according to Christ. And in verse 9 it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwells. And so right here we have the first statement of profound truth about Jesus. The whole fullness of Jesus, uh, the whole fullness of deity, the fullness of God, the full essence of who God is dwells in Jesus. And so when we believe the Trinity, we don't believe some sort of Greek mythological Hercules. Jesus isn't half God and half man. And so, uh, and, and we have to be careful how we articulate things uh, when, when we talk about Jesus. Uh, because we'll say things like, well, Jesus was tempted in every way, but of course he didn't sin. Because he, he was part human, yeah, but he was also God. You know, and, and, and we say things in such a way that we diminish the fullness of the temptation, the fullness of the pain and the suffering of Jesus because he was also God. And what we see is that Jesus, the Christ, was fully human, all right, and he was fully God. And then the other thing that we tend to see is people say that he was a good man, right? He's a good man. He was a prophet of sorts. He, he, he was an ethical man. He loved the poor. Like Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., we ought to, uh, and we would be better if the whole world would sort of walk like Jesus a little bit. But he's certainly not God. And what Paul's saying is that's not true at all. That in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then in verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And now we move into the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're, we're going to see this for a little bit. That Christ is the fullness of deity um, dwelling bodily. But that we have been filled in Christ. We've been filled by Christ with what? With the Spirit. The Spirit of God fills us as Christians. And, and I know that as kids, you know, we, we say, you know, Jesus lives in my heart. What does it mean that you're a Christian? It means that Jesus lives in my heart. Kind of, right? We've grown some, and we, our theology ought to grow as well. It's not Jesus that lives in our heart. It's his Spirit that he's placed within us. And so the Holy Spirit fills us, um, and in him... You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the, flesh, the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so here's what happens is the, the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts as we are in Christ. And you're saying, this is really kind of awkward and weird. Why, why are we talking about 
circumcision when we should be talking about how to live in Jesus. But you have to remember, he's speaking to a converted Jewish audience primarily. And what was circumcision? Yeah, it was a ritual that, that, that helped with cleanliness, but, but it was a covenant sign of God's faithfulness to his people. It was a sign of God's faithfulness. And so as the, the young boys, as these infant boys were circumcised, they entered into the covenant community of, Christ, of, of, of Israel, the covenant community of God that was Israel. And in a sense, because no other cultures typically uh, practice circumcision, yes, they were, they were sanctified, they were set apart from the rest of the world, uh, they were distinguished as God's own, but more than that, they entered into the covenant community of Christ, which means that all of the promise, or the covenant community of God, which means that all of the promises of God in the old covenant were theirs. All of the covenant promises and blessings and curses for disobedience belonged to them because they had been circumcised into Israel. And what Paul is saying is that we who are in Christ now are circumcised into a new covenant. We're we're circumcised into the new covenant community of Christ. And that's done by the Spirit. We are no longer to be identified with the world. We are sanctified. We are set apart for Jesus Christ. We are in his covenant, which means all of the covenant promises that are yes in Jesus are ours. By the power of the Spirit. Then he goes on to say, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And now we have this image of baptism where you, you go under the water and you come back up in death and in rebirth and resurrection and that this identifies us with Christ, but it's more than that. This is more than just water baptism. This is spirit baptism. Some of you kind of do this when you say spirit baptism. Um, This is not spirit baptism that that comes with necessarily any sort of ecstatic gifts, although it certainly does come with spiritual gifting used for the edification of the church. And the spirit is powerful and often forgotten. Forgotten in evangelical circles. But the Spirit baptizes us. And what it says is that uh, you, in verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God um, God made alive together with him. And so here we see a couple things. That the Spirit, by, by baptizing us, raises us from the dead, we participate in resurrection. It's not just that Christ was raised, it's that we also, who are in Christ, are being raised, we have been raised, and we will be raised, ultimately, because of the work of the Spirit. 
And then we also see that, that the Spirit, the one working here, Paul just calls God. In verse 12, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And so you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him and God the Father pardoned all of our trespasses. He pardoned our iniquities. And he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal documents with its legal demands and this he set uh, aside nailing it to the cross this is salvation this is the Christian life I'm going to rephrase it and, and, and reformulate it so that you hear the trinity and the gospel there are two ways to talk about it. The first is this, that salvation and the Christian life is Trinitarian. That is, it is uh, because of and rooted in the Trinity because God the Father planned, Jesus accomplished, and the Holy Spirit applies. Our salvation was planned out by God. It was accomplished on the cross in Jesus, and it is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And look, these are simplifications in some sense. And we all know that. Uh, the reality is these are mysteries. <laughs> these are mysteries that we, 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 we will not comprehend in this life and and I doubt we will in the next. Because God is so far beyond what we could ever be. Because we are finite and he is infinite. But then the next thing is this, that the reality is that God created. Right? We see that in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? And then we see that the earth was formless and void and that the Spirit was hovering over the waters, was hovering over the depth. And then God said, let there be light. And so in this first three verses, what we see is this God who, who is Yahweh, who is Elohim, who is, who is Father of all things. We see the Spirit hovering over and we see that God's words actually make things happen. And later on in John, it's not a coincidence that he likens Jesus to the word and says that without the word, nothing was made that was made. And so right there in creation, we see all three persons of the Trinity fully active and God creates and it's good. And then we see in Genesis 3 what? The fall. You're asking, how is this related? It's coming. And Adam and Eve disobey God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And as a result, they bite the fruit and they are expelled from the garden. And we see that sin enters the earth and, and there, is, there are effects uh, of their sin. Sin affects them. There are effects and sin affects them. And there are three 
things that we see because of sin. Number one, uh, Adam and Eve and thus all humanity, we deserve the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? It's death. The wages of sin are death, eternal death. And then we see that they're under the power of sin, and so are we. We experience temptation. So did Jesus. But Jesus wasn't under the power of sin, and so he didn't succumb to that temptation. But we do, and you know you do. You know you do. Kids, every time you lie to your parents so that you you can get what you want, you know you're sinning. Men, when you log on to the computer, you know you're sinning. Not just when you log on to the computer, but you know. (laughs) Wives, wives, when you gather together and you're poor-mouthing your husbands for not being this or that, it's sin and you know it. Every single one of us can put our finger um, on sin in our lives. We are under the power of sin. And sometimes it's extremely obvious that we have no control. But even if it's not, you don't. The power's not in your hands. You don't have the power. It's sin. And then finally, we see that we're in the presence of sin. And you don't have to go very far to see that. Some of you don't have to leave your homes to see the presence of sin. But it manifests itself in war and disease and starvation and death and divorce and depression and and all of these things uh, in greed, laziness. We are surrounded by the presence of sin and by the presence of death. And we need to be saved from all three of these. Here's the reality. Because of the work of Christ, God canceled, as Colossians 2 says, He canceled the penalty of sin. If you are in Christ, there is no longer death to fear. There's no longer hell to fear. And we see that when Christ ascended, he gave his spirit to his people. And it is God's power. And the spirit convicts, the spirit regenerates, and then the spirit empowers you. It empowers you to live holy lives. What Paul says in Romans is that you don't have to give yourself up as instruments of unrighteousness anymore. If you live by the spirit... God has and is saving us from the power of sin in our lives. And we trust and we recite in our creeds like we did last week that Jesus Christ is returning. And this time not in a manger but on a horse. A white horse ready to, ready to get it done. I don't say er because I'm not from the South. Sorry. But he is ready to take action. He's ready for war. We're, it's one of my favorite images in all of Scripture. Here's the army of God dressed up for war with their swords in hand. Like, all right, here comes our general. We're going to fight. And they don't do anything. Jesus just comes in. He's like, 
mouth open, blam, swords. Everybody's dead except for his people. This is Jesus. The conquering king is coming. And he is going to save us from the presence of sin altogether. This is a great and glorious thing. This is what we have to look forward to. This should be joyful. We get to look forward to a day when no more parents cry over the illness or the death of their children. We get to look forward to a day when we don't have to wear pink at all because cancer isn't even in the equation. You can still wear pink if you like, I guess. We get to look forward to the day when we don't have to hear statistics like 24,000 kids leaving this world a day due to starvation and preventable diseases. We get to look forward to a day when there is no war, no poverty, where homes are healed, where joy is restored, where the fullness of life and things are the way they ought to be. Jesus is coming. I don't know why you're not like jumping and pumping your f- This is great news. Jesus is returning. And in the Trinity, in the fullness of who God is, is the reversal of every effect of the curse of the fall. To the praise and the glory of God. And I I put verse 15 in in this, well, I didn't put it in, Paul did. But I kept it in this particular, um, in this particular passage. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Open shame. By triumphing over them in him. Who is him? Is it Christ? Yes. Is it the Father? Yes. Is it the Spirit? Yes. There is no hope without the fullness of the Trinity. Do you see that? Do you believe? If so, then there's nothing left to do but to bow and worship. And to, as Paul said in the beginning, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Walk in Jesus. You can. You must. Look, if you, if you have not yet believed this gospel, today is the day. There is no God like Yahweh. There is no God like ours. And if you will walk in him and rest in him, he will show you. He will show you. And if you are in Christ, endure suffering well with joy. Receive blessings and success with humility. Love God and love your neighbors. In short, let's be the church. Pray with me.